1: Shalom from Jerusalem. This is uh, Powers in Play, our monthly show focusing on the interplay between nations and other global players. And uh, with us are retired Colonel, Reserve Colonel, I should say, Miri Eisen. Hello, oh, Miri. Hello. Reserve Brigadier General Daron Gavish. And Mr. Ran Etzion, a former Deputy National Security Advisor for the Hi. State of Israel and other positions in the Israeli government. Now everybody, uh, of course quotes uh, the old uh, President Truman's uh, cliché about the buck stops here. This is of course regarding what happens within governments, but what happens when governments interplay? Is there any place where the buck stops? There was of course uh, during World War II a series of conferences of so-called the Big Three sometimes more than uh, churchill roosevelt and stalin some other leaders uh, whether to there is no mechanism today and our issue is today is uh, how do nations make decisions among themselves as well as within themselves and are movements and organizations and other subnational units taking part in this play Iran.
2: such a huge question where where, where do we begin
1: Um, we can take the uh, russia ukraine crisis for instance and try to dissect it to see whether uh, there is a nato a west is there any group uh operating vis-a-vis vladimir putin i would start perhaps
2: with what kissinger famously said and i I often quote him Uh, he used to say that you know in the good old days of the cold war he said, give me a map of the world and allow me to draw just one line. I'll draw you one line between the East and West, and there you have it. That's all you need to know. We, n- we obviously live in a very different situation, or at least we thought we lived in a very different situation. And now, uh, in such an exercise, you would be compelled to draw multiple lines, and that's probably not even possible. Because, as you said, you'd have to factor in sub-national actors, uh, including various actors, uh, anywhere from Al-Qaeda to Facebook, and everything in between, Elon Musk. It's ironic
1: uh, It's ironic that uh, Kissinger uh, has said it, because along with uh, President Nixon, he tried to uh, make it a tripolar world, or at least to uh, uh, win China uh, away from uh, Russia, the, or Soviet Union. The,
2: the problem is that there is a huge discrepancy between the formalized structure of global affairs, international institutions, United Nations Security Council, uh, even NATO to that respect, um, between that architecture and reality on the ground and the pace of change in reality. There's a total discrepancy. And to perhaps to say a word about uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation in in that regard, we saw that there was uh, an emergency effort to try and create a better adaptation between the structure and the architecture and realities on the ground, and it's still ongoing. The fact that Finland and Sweden have now, in a very kind of emergency way, have, have uh, joined NATO, uh, the discussion on Ukraine's role w- uh, in or out of NATO and all of that, these are all manifestations uh, of that phenomenon. And in the absence of architectures and, and formal structures, uh, what nations do is they resort to all sorts of, uh, shall, shall we say, improvisations, uh, track two, track one and a half, and uh, all sorts of uh, creative formations in order to try and, and uh, resolve conflicts, sometimes successfully. Uh, and we have, you know, some uh, some very close to home uh, examples such as the uh, beginning of the Israel-Hamas dialogue with the Shalit uh, deal and
1: the fact that The Israeli soldier abducted by Hamas and then released five released, years Released
2: right? through the personal efforts of one lone, um, almost, uh, shall we say, strange Israeli mediator who took, who took the initiative, Gershon Baskin. I do not accept uh, that. But so, I do not
3: accept that. So, anyway,
2: it's, it's anything but a formal structure of negotiation with, between nations, what, what happened there.
1: Miri, we used to uh, say uh, almost unthinkingly uh, whenever there was a new president of the United States that he, he has uh, uh, been given the mantle of the leader of the free world. It uh, wasn't uh, exactly uh, like that even uh, during the heyday of the Cold War, but it was uh, a very convenient uh, catchphrase. But what happens when the leader of the free world either wants to lead from behind or to uh, go back into uh, Fortress America? Is there any leader, a leader leader, a couple of leaders, perhaps European leaders during uh, the uh, time when Britain was in the European Union, um, the German uh, chancellor, the, pres- the French president, or is it so diffused now that one cannot uh, speak about a leader?
0: I can't speak about one leader. I'm looking at the sign powers in play behind you. I'm thinking of the words you just said, the leader of the free world, add into that the Europeans, and I'm thinking to myself, gentlemen, breathe in deep, how patronizing are we? Because we're the free world, meaning they're not. Powers in play, how do we define those powers in play? I think within the world nowadays, one of the big changes that's happened, which is one of the reasons that you don't have a leader nowadays, is that there are different views of what this world is, what it means within that sense, is freedom what you really mean? Within the United States of America, certainly within Europe and different arenas right now, you hear different voices that challenge the structure of the governments, of the nations, that identity aspect of who's free and who is not, what it means within our world. And I, I say that because just within this idea right now, how do we define? I don't think that Chinese think of themselves in their day-to-day life in the way that I'm going to look at them from, and I'm saying it from my point of view, my patronizing, very western or metronizing.
1: In your case, metronizing.
0: Exactly, right? It's okay. I'm pretty patronizing myself, even with, with all of my background. I've learned the patronizing very well. When I look at Russia right now, in Russia, Ukraine, I think that Russia would define this as a Russian domestic aspect. They wouldn't even define it as being something where they attacked a different state at all. They defined it as being something domestic Russian. And I go, oh poo-poo-poo, that's incorrect, but that's exactly that challenge of this new type of world where the different definitions that are out there Challenge each and every one of us, but I want to challenge us here also in the way that we look at it and the way that we frame it. So I think that there's no one leader and that everyone nowadays inside the countries, inside those self-identities, are defining leadership in a vastly different way.
1: Well, of course, uh, free world is very um, much American-centric, and not only that— this is even before the civil rights movement.
0: Hey, and, and Amir, uh, inside the United States right now, right. that challenge is very much yes, there. Yes,
1: of course. Um, but in addition to that, the, um, the other um, phrase, non aligned movement, they too were not really non aligned. But um, this, this is um, ancient uh, history. John uh, Gavish, uh, you're uh, very well versed in your contacts with the uh, Department of Defense in the United States. And the American military is used to uh, salute and obey whoever is the uh, civilian echelon, their civilian superiors uh, at the time. But do you get the sense that it does not really matter whoever sits uh, in the White House? Uh, Are they really going uh, to execute whatever plan um, doesn't, uh, uh, really, uh, they don't really care whether it's, it's rational or not?
3: Um, before answering the question, I, w- I want to uh, you know, note something which is uh, for the discussion that we had here uh, before. I think that you know, one of the big changes is that in the past, uh, we had east, west, it was easier. Globalization changes. Today, the world is completely uh, different. Uh, globalization means that uh, you cannot uh, say something as a leader and everyone would obey to it because the interests are going in and out. And uh, you know, if we, if we see what is happening with the, with Russia, with uh, China, uh, there are a lot of interests uh, that uh, other countries in the world have, like in Europe, Turkey, uh, uh, European countries which are which have uh, trading relations with uh, Russia, is that you know they have their own interests, so. I think that today, still, the United States, of course, is very influ- influential of uh, what is happening, uh, but it, but it's not like in the past. Uh, it's completely different. Uh, globalization changed this, and uh, and I think that today decisions are being made among countries, not only by the mechanisms that there are, like NATO and others, but also as a ad hoc issue. There is an ad hoc issue you're looking around you who are the ones with the A coalition interest? of the willing kind of exactly exercise but but <laughs> exactly. uh,
1: but general gavish when you speak about globalization usually of course the term refers to uh, the lowering of trade barriers and the fact that there are multinational corporations mm. but we see that when push comes to shove and there are sanctions for instance the commercial interests of um, uh, huge Um, global corporations are being pushed aside and you see the old nationalism or perhaps uh, Multinationalism creep back and uh, the uh, headquarters of the multinational corporations have to obey Well
3: um, Yes, but it's a question of uh, how long would it take, you know, you could do it for a certain time the question is if for a long time this is something that uh, Uh, Would happen. Um, I agree. If you're talking probably about what is happening now with Russia and and Ukraine and so on,
1: Um, also Iran, uh, which is being sanctioned.
3: Iran, it's I think something. It's it's a bit easier because it's a raw country. Um, You know, Russia
0: isn't a raw country.
3: um, Different from uh, from Iran, Uh, of of course, from our perspective as an Israelis. But but going back to your uh, question. You know, when I work with, with, the, with the U.S. Uh, military, there is no even a question of uh, who is the leader of the United States. I don't see it. I see that there is a policy, and the policy is being followed uh, by, by the military uh, uh, personnel. Uh, of course, in, in, in the level that, uh, that I'm meeting, one of, the, one of the great examples is that what is happening now. Told Israel the decision to move from uh, UCOM to Centcom. That was a governmental uh, decision taken uh, by you've, the you've United States. You've known them
1: at least from the uh, uh, second President Bush. Uh, the term of uh, even the first one. My,
3: my first uh, engagement. Let's put it uh, from this George was Washington. <laughs> Come on, confess. <laughs> yeah, it was was during uh, the first Gulf War when we fought uh, shoulder to shoulder. I was a young captain uh, sitting with the. Uh, U.S. Uh, officer next to my next to me, and we are shooting when we were shooting. Once upon a time, against exactly against uh, against the scouts that were shot to Israel. But if you're starting, you know this is the
1: with we, we All in all, uh, you'd rather go back to being also, to being uh, captain.
3: If you want to, no, no. <laughs> if you start to speak about our uh, heritage, it would take the whole the, whole, <laughs> the we take the whole time. Uh, but again, going back to your question, uh, I I really I what I see is is the. The decision is made by the politician level, and the military level is completely there, following the following their leaders.
1: And of course, the uh, commander in chief is the president of the United States, and uh, therefore Truman referred to the buck stopping uh, uh, at the White House on his desk. But we saw only recently that the Speaker of the House, the leader of one of the two houses um, in the legislative branch can uh, have uh, her own foreign policy regardless of what the executive branch wants and other countries looking at the United States are asking themselves So who's making policy?
2: Yeah, mainly the Chinese of course and they've they've <laughs> asked that question for a long time I in my conversations with various Chinese. This was always um, you know one of their Strong arguments against the U. The U.S. the U.S. system, the democratic system, speaking about the free world, compared to their system, you know. And, um, so yes, there are shortcomings, if you will, from a certain rigid perspective to democracy, to uh, separation of, uh, of government branches, and so on. But of course, I think we uh, would prefer a democratic system to a Chinese or a Russian system, and I think that's also. To the extent that one can speak in those terms, this is also the global interest. Uh, although the famous uh, phrase of uh, Tom Friedman about two countries having a McDonald's, not, not fighting anymore, was just disproven by Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of the uh, con- kind of conventional uh, assumptions that many of us assumed about you know the uh, end of uh, traditional wars and, and all of that, were also disproven by by Putin. Nevertheless, if we try to speak from kind of a generally benevolent perspective and looking at global affairs and powers in play and so on, from the perspective of, you know, the betterment of of humankind, I think there is no question that uh, in terms of the relations between populations and their government structures, there is no better alternative to democracy, even though, of course, it's flawed. Now, can we expect in uh, you mentioned bush in an in a naive american or patronizing american way that all the global powers will become democratic in our lifetime or at any time in the future probably not the russians by the way have an interesting kind of way of thinking about global affairs they think about i, I once had a very interesting conversation with their head of policy planning about that they think in civilizational terms and they see Uh, I don't remember exactly the number of civilizations, global civilizations, maybe three or four. Of course, the Russian civilization, the Euro-Asian civilization is one of them. The Chinese is is another, the Western is another, and maybe the uh, Islamist uh, or Islamic is, is the fourth. And the way they see the world is in those terms. You know, that's not going to change. Not necessarily a clash
1: clash of civilization? The interaction?
2: Yes, it's not necessarily a conflict, as always. You know, conflict and cooperation go go hand in hand, depending on the time, the topic, and so on. But in terms of um, historical perspective, they see that as a constant. You know, these are the The uh, powers in play on the global scene you have maybe four or five civilizations, and that's it and that's the way it's going it's going to stay. Yes, they will shrink, they will develop, they will have their internal changes, and of course their interrelations but Miri, but that's aren't, not going to
1: aren't we being too simplistic by dividing the world to uh, democracies and dictatorships because even dictators have to be mindful of public opinion in its various manifestations. And of course one can go back uh, to old China and the mandate of heaven.
0: Go to 2011. <laughs>
1: so so uh, of course. Uh, and uh, if you have uh, a real tyrant like Saddam Hussein, he had a multi confessional country to take care of with Shiites and Sunnis and Kurds. Um, in addition, to the um, uh, natural resistance to his uh, own Ba'athist uh, semi-military rule. So there are mechanisms in which even dictators take the pulse of the population.
0: They need to take the pulse. They do it in a very negative way. And there's always that question of... They always
1: take the uh, arm from which they take the pulse. <laughs> the <takeoff of laughs> we
0: cover. really are quite cruel as we sit here. Yeah. They were. Well, mm-hmm. I was as I was wandering around Jordan not too long ago. One of the things that surprised me, and I admit surprised me the most, was the amount of manifestations of Saddam Hussein that I saw in Jordan. And I kept asking about that. Why in 2022 am I seeing all of these stickers and posters? I said, oh no, we we very much think that Saddam Hussein represented, and I was like, who is the we inside that Jordanian we? Saddam Hussein at the end was toppled by the United States of America, not by his own people. After he was toppled, we have not seen you know, a gradual, and again with that word democracy, a development of an Iraqi version of its own civic type of freedom. We're very challenged by that right now. We haven't mentioned until now India as a country that has equal civil rights. Yes, no, how that works, and certainly within powers in play think that dictators need to take into account their own people. When you are a small dictator, you can perhaps be harsher. But at the end, if there's one thing we saw in 2011, is how quickly, how rapidly and even unexpectedly you can throw out decadent dictators in Tunisia and in Libya, in Libya and in Egypt, in Egypt and in Yemen, and before that, in that sense, in the outer force from Iraq. But that doesn't mean that you always can And we always have that Bashar Assad opposite there. I don't think of Bashar Assad as a power. I think of him as somebody who was propped up and not himself being the power. But the big dictatorships right now, if it's the um, Russia, you know, you sit on TV and say Russia's a dictatorship. Afterwards, you feel like you're under, I don't know what kind of light. If you talk about China, I don't view Russia and China in the same way. I think that each one of them in their own language, and you said civilization, I'll add in the word culture. And that's exactly one of those differences where when I talk in our English-speaking program to our English-speaking world as the common language, that aspect of a Russian civilization culture, of a Chinese, more complex civilization culture, and the way they view the world, the dictatorships there may not be seen the way that we're going to look at them in the sense that they present values and ideas that I may not agree with. Such a stability. Not just stability, but the importance of background, of history, of that culture, of the language. And I'm looking at that and going, that's more important than freedom and of different kind of rights that for me are so important. And for me, they are. And I think for us, they are. And I'm I'm not happy about it, but I question if that's true everywhere.
1: Mm -hmm. um, We are right now in the world undergoing a ritual, which during your time in government was quite a happy event. At least uh, for analysts to bite into and that is the Revcon the review conference of the uh, NPT Mm. the non-proliferation treaty Every five years now because of COVID it's seven years since the last one But just like uh, the Olympics never nevertheless, we are now in the 2020 Revcon and The haves and the have-nots are always having the same exchange you Big Five have promised us that uh, you will, uh, in due course, um, turn your nuclear weapons uh, into ploughshares. has not happened. We have not uh, agreed to it, but um, why are we the second-class citizens of the world? How can one solve this contradiction, if at all?
2: We probably can't, and we don't necessarily have to. I think the interesting points about the NPT are the following. First of all, to a large extent, it still holds. And that's a rarity in international relations, as we said before. It is uh, a binding international agreement that has, again, by and large, been very successful and binding. And that's, uh, that's a huge achievement. Secondly, um, the fact that we saw some powers creeping into it. And obviously, I, I think about India creeping into it but through. not being
1: a member of the regime of the uh, class yes,
2: creeping into the capability and you know creating an arrangement for itself um, um, is is interesting and important and i think some other countries uh, might be looking into that model in the in the present and, and in the future.
0: Iran, wouldn't you see it also, though, in that sense yeah. of what you talked about at the beginning within mm-hmm. the rules and the definitions of governance, mm-hmm. that that changing of the NPT with India and Pakistan kind of allowing it in mm-hmm. was kind of a broadening of that idea. Mm-hmm. Iran is outside because it's signed on the NPT and it's mm-hmm. not abiding by it. Mm-hmm. But that you actually can change the rules to accommodate things that happen.
2: Yes, that's that's what I mean. It's, it's uh, creativity, and, and it works, and it, and it speaks to, again... When it's the, India the, and the, Pakistan. <laughs> yeah, um, but um, I think broadening the scope a little bit and looking at nuclear capabilities at large, what we are already seeing, and that's uh, from an Israeli perspective, at least a traditional Israeli perspective, is a negative development is the proliferation of uh, civilian nuclear technologies in the region. We're seeing the UAE, the Saudis, the Egyptians. Is it a a positive development? Um, From a traditional Israeli uh, outlook, it is not. But I think it's inevitable, given global warming and the need for uh, energy sources and so on, and the revival now of of, uh, uh, civilian uh, nuclear capabilities as, uh, as a relatively cheap, available, um, economically viable uh, uh, solution that everybody is now kind of re-examining, the Germans and so on. So I think we're going to see significant changes. And I think that the NPT will be challenged uh, in, in, the, in, in the present and in the future. And of course, we cannot speak about the NPT without talking about Iran. And I think here too, we're on the perhaps on the verge of a turning point. Not only from the perspective of Iran, but also from the perspective of Russia and China. And and if you know, in the foreseeable future, and, you know, in the scope of a few months or maybe a year, the JCPOA is not revived. I think it will be uh, to a large extent because Iran, China, and Russia have reevaluated the entire NPT situation, the global nuclear regime. The uh, pros and cons of Iran becoming either a threshold country or even a full-fledged um, uh, nuclear military power, um, perhaps with the either tacit or even non-tacit blessing of of Russia and China, and that's I think this has now become a real possibility. I didn't think so until but know, this is a short this while
1: ago. This would run counter to uh, the obligations of the nuclear weapon states, in this case, China and uh, Russia, yes. not helping non-nuclear weapon states gain. Yes, I, think, I think they would
2: maneuver in order, you know, to try and preserve the, the shell, if you will, of the NPT, you know, in a similar, in, in not dissimilar way to what was done with India and, and Pakistan, uh, to accommodate uh, a, a threshold Country uh, and, and, and threshold Iran, or even again, fully capable. Iran.
1: General Gavish, um, when um, uh, President Bush, President George W. Bush, um, invaded Afghanistan um, a few weeks after 9 11, the uh, rationale was that uh, the Taliban uh, were hosting Al Qaeda. What we have in Lebanon and other places is not. Similar. It's not that the government of Lebanon is uh, giving safe haven to Hezbollah, but rather that Hezbollah is the de facto government without having any responsibility, any accountability to uh, what happens uh, mm-hmm. consequently. How can uh, a system of world government contend with this disparity between? Uh, territorial sovereignty, and the reality of a subnational group running the show. Well, this
3: this is a this is a challenge, of course, and uh, and and we could look at the Lebanon of um, you know it's kind of a, of a use case or showcase that we could look at and say, okay, let's see what is happening in Lebanon, and could could we really influence it? Well, um, I'm not sure that we could really influence from a world point of view, and uh, we could really design what is happening uh, in, in other uh, places, by the way. I think uh, also Israel, uh, there is a grown-up, um, I would say, a situation that we are in from where we've been in the past that we thought that we could really shape uh, Lebanon and we could... Uh, Choose ourselves who's going to be the leader and not um, I think that today We are more modest on it and uh, we understand that uh, this is something that we have to look at uh, To contain the situation to look on the Israeli interest, mm-hmm. but really to influence it and uh, uh, To be able to change it. This is something uh, which I think it's it's very very uh, challenging the countries by themselves they have to fight it. I mean the, the, everyone have to look at his own interest and uh, and to try to To deal with it, I'm not sure so much that the world uh, could really change those, uh, you know, those things.
0: It's interesting when we're talking about responsibility and about sovereignty and about the the (laughs) gap between the two. Look at Hamas and the Gaza Strip, who are absolutely sovereign. They took over very violently, and they see what they're supposed to do as the sovereign is resistance. Not, you know, building water systems, creating jobs, etc. When you look at Lebanon, Lebanon is such a complicated country in that sense. Um, Hezbollah is a Lebanese force, and it's also an Iranian-supplied, and it's inspired by. But it's Arabic-speaking Lebanese. When you look at powers in play, um, we talked at the beginning, this isn't about proxies. Right now, when I look at a Russia and I look at, a, at the Putin or I look at China in that sense, because China had changes of government in a slightly different way um, until recently. I don't know if it'll again, it's within the system in very different ways. And I wonder how you can hold Lebanon responsible when Hezbollah does whatever it wants. And, and, and it's a question that we need to ask ourselves right now, because we do this time and time again. I, right now, am holding Russia responsible and not Putin. And I am holding China responsible and not the Chinese Communist Party. And I'm going to hold Lebanon responsible, and it's not them at all. And this broadens in that sense. But you
1: you are interposing religion on the territorial unit.
0: It's not just religion. And
1: uh, we used to have, long ago, the Holy Roman Empire. Now we have the Holy Persian Empire, the Holy Russian Empire...
0: I'm not sure that I look at it through eyes of religion. I do think that what's happened is that both nationalities, identities, as they're evolving, are impacting our powers in the world. Russia, in its own way, to me, is just resurging what Russia always was Russia again in the last hundreds of years and and i'm I'm not as worried about Russia as everybody else' is. I'm not sure why I should exp- it's just in its own sense, I feel that Russia is a shrinking power because demographically um, it's going down the line there okay um, I'm much more worried by a China. Or by an in India, just numbers wise and the impact. When you focus in on religion, yes, Christianity, but that's very diverse. Islam, that's also very diverse. And then you step into the Hindi world in Hindu and in India, which has a civilization, cultural impact, language and otherwise. How that impacts, How countries work with each other, what you do with subgroups is something that we're seeing all over the place. Because even when you govern, you don't always notice the minorities. So this is always going to be a challenge. Again, I'm looking through my democratic eyes, as
2: always. (laughs) My two cents about Lebanon, before you ask, um, is uh, I think to me uh, there is a much greater degree of uh, worrying about Lebanon compared to uh, a few years or even a few months ago. The country is collapsing. Uh, There will perhaps come a point at which the country, it's it's an interesting question, you know, when does a country collapse? Is Somalia still a country? Is Mali still a country? And so on, what constitutes a country? But uh, because obviously this is not Mali or Somalia, this is our our front and backyard. uh, If indeed Lebanon collapses in in a significant way, that's going to create a huge set of problems that we never faced before. Um, and I think... You faced again, it in Syria. Mm, in a different way. It was a way. collapsed country in, on our border. I, uh, I, the, it comes to mind, Iraq. but I think it's different. And what I, we the, don't border. The, point, oh. the point is that, you know, I remember in the, in the heydays of the Syrian civil war, there were uh, people within the system, I was in the system then, who thought that uh, Syria is going to disintegrate and it will cease to exist as a, as a state. It didn't happen for a variety of reasons. Uh, But I think in Lebanon, it is more plausible because of the construction of the country, the size of the country, many other factors. Uh, And such a situation, of course, is going to be uh, incredibly complicated from an Israeli perspective. To Doran's point, what can we do about it? I I slightly disagree. I think there is a, a lot that we can do and that we're not doing. A small example is the negotiations on the uh, delineation of the uh, economic waters, which should have been concluded a long time ago. And a- although the f- official Israeli line is, you know, it's all about Hezbollah and Lebanon not agreeing, I'm not sure that's the situation. I think Israel could have compromised more and hopefully will compromise more and reach an agreement. And I think that's um, that will have a positive contribution to at least the slowing down uh, of the disintegration
3: of the Lebanese state which is extremely important.
1: So the laws of yeah, physics. We were talking
3: about the Hezbollah the question mm-hmm. is really if we or, or any other countries could really shape what is happening within Lebanon. I think to a certain we extent. We could it's... help uh, but yeah, at yeah, the again. end of the day we cannot shape it. First, uh, of, all,
2: first of all, look at what Iran has <clears throat> done and is doing with Hezbollah that is shaping to a Incredible extent mm-hmm. the situation in Lebanon. If they you ask they a, created Hezbollah, they yeah. nurtured Hezbollah, they made it what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also if an you ex- ask no.
0: any Lebanese, mm-hmm. they will say how much Israel has impacted Lebanon of over the last 50, <laughs> 70 so, years. So that's <laughs> so that's, that's a
1: real issue. The mm-hmm. laws of physics apply. Yeah. If you push, you get pushback. Mm-hmm. If you push in Jordan, and you have Palestinians running away from Jordan to Lebanon, you exacerbate the Lebanese problem, sure. which was there, but was not uh, so bad uh, uh, to begin with. Um, and um, the question uh, I want to uh, segue into is that, is there a common cause for the world? For instance, migration, one, one of the consequences of what you said about failed Uh, States, Mm -hmm. countries which may collapse, is that millions of people, as they did over the last 10, 15 years or after world wars, will migrate somewhere else, changing the balance. Climate. Is there any real chance for the entire world to get together to fight the elements of nature or to help the elements of nature?
2: It's a... It's an optimistic way of phrasing a question. Um, I think um, the recent example of the COVID is an interesting casing point where we saw two conflicting trends. On the one hand, we did see a very impressive global effort that brought about the vaccination and and other kind of global achievements, uh, which were very impressive and unprecedented. And I think will serve as a model for, for future calamities Know, be it viruses or climate change or or other issues um, but to uh, to go back to what uh, the one said before, this was ultimately an ad hoc effort and not an institutionalized one whereas on the climate change there have been ongoing uh, attempts at creating a global structure which by and large have failed so uh, I think unfortunately the criteria is the overall sense in the global public about the severity and the immediacy of the threat. And whereas COVID was clear and present danger, climate change is still a little different, even though at least in some areas of the world, it's it's already very much present, but not globally yet. So I think you know, in all those uh, catastrophe movies about a meteor or aliens, something like that, when there is a clear and present danger, yes, the global community can come together and uh, create collaborative, collective efforts.
0: Can I push Uh, back on the global for a moment? Please, please do. Um, We haven't added into this the difference within the world between. Developed countries or really mm. advanced developed countries in less developed countries. And I'm going back to my patronizing note because mm. that's me and my patronizing that in its own way, the very advanced developed countries, as if, are coming to everybody else and saying, here. Um, We're going to draw a line and you need to come to our line. And and they're not there yet. It's like they have to come up to us and there isn't a meeting point. We're not going to be less developed for them to be more developed. Mm -hmm. And I think that that impacts the capability to address global challenges because we're not on equal ground and add into it the non-state players, let alone the ones that are such strong negative type players that add into that thing. Because as you were thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking about water. Okay, we're all going to want water. And right now we're seeing a war where water is turning into a weapon of war. We're seeing that in more and more places where when you have the water or don't have the water, you're using it. And I'm sadly looking at the winter of 2022. And I'm wondering about the weapon of war of heating, where you you don't think of it in those terms because we like to use the word oil or gas. And I'm saying, so people don't deserve heat? Is it different because they're in Europe and it's developed countries? Or grain
1: in the U- Or grain in Ukraine.
0: the Ukraine. Exactly. That would certainly be in there. Mm-hmm. So when you get, have, because the world came together to get the grain out of Ukraine. Not exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, they did a deal because they understood that the implications, if that grain didn't get out, would come back and bite them in the behind. So I worry in that sense about how we come together true. on There are going so. to
2: be losers. in, in One, a, When we say global, it, it still it's, leaves, Uh, significant fringes that are going to
1: be excluded. We are drawing to the end one Mm -hmm. quick question Mm -hmm. regarding ways and means. Mm -hmm. Even provided the world decided on something, how can it be enforced? We have seen sanctions and other uh, punitive measures. Um, They didn't really uh, have uh, stellar success. What, what's your view around We don't have
2: obviously a globally uh, global enforcing mechanism and I don't think again the foreseeable future will have something like that. Uh, the sanctions are an interesting example because they do have an effect but they were never you know global or or, or comprehensive as they were claimed to be by the Americans and the Europeans and others. Um, and technology is always a factor and it's going to allow Rogue actors to bypass sanctions, no matter what we do. You know, with crypto and, and other means, it's going to be very
1: difficult. Maybe the uh, Gen- General Gavish, um, a call to arms, um, a world in uniform.
3: <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> I really hope not. But um, I completely agree with uh, with what was said by by Iran. I think that it's much more uh, complex today, and. Um, um, and it goes back to the head oak uh, idea of that if something would come up, we would have, as a glo- global world, we have to find the right coalition and, and try to, to fight it. But there is no, uh, you know, there is no really a, a global uh, decision and everything. Everyone is would be running into it. I don't see it happening.
1: Final words of wisdom, <laughs> Miri Eisen.
0: Hashtag powers in play. We need to find the follower who gets the 4 billion followers. That's the one that can make a global change.
1: Colonel in the Reserves, Miri Eisen, Brigadier General in the reserve Doron Gavish, Mr. Iran thank you very much. Thank you. And we will be back with another edition of Powers in Play for TV7 News. Shalom from Jerusalem.